spookiest time of the year, there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing's Listener Choice Runner-Up Review of Trick or Treat. This is a great idea, honey. Really. It's just magical. Hosted by Stuart. That's some big equipment you've got there. Thank you. Arnie. He bit me. And Brock. My, my. What big eyes. This podcast will contain detailed spoilers and harsh language. You said a bad word. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah. Let's go downstairs. Today we're talking about Trick or Treat, starring Dylan Baker, Rochelle Etiz, Anna Paquin, Brian Cox, and directed by Michael Doherty. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie. Let's go downstairs, shall we? You gotta help me with the eyes. Because we are here reviewing Trick or Treat. Because or is for douchebag nerds. No, because there's another movie called Trick or Treat that has Ozzy Osbourne and heavy metal Satanists from hell. Isn't Gene Simmons in that one? I believe he does have a cameo, yes. It stars Skippy from Family Ties, if you remember him. Of course, it's a headbanger, naturally. Of course. It's typecasting. <laughs> well, we are here because we did the listener's choice vote trying to find out what horror movie you wanted us to review this season. And the question was, trick or treat, cabin in the woods, or zombie land? And we are here reviewing Trick or Treat, because you tricked us, so we're giving you a treat. <laughs> yeah, this one didn't win, but we decided to do it anyway. Honestly, we don't know what won. It might have been Zombieland, for all we know. <laughs> we know that there would be short periods of time in which 500, 600 people would all of a sudden, in mass decide that they were going for Cabin in the Woods or Trick or Treat. I gotta say, I know that we have a lot of listeners. They can be very supportive. But within 24 hours, getting 500, 600 votes, a little suspicious. I have a confession to make to both of you. It was me. <laughs> you just wanted a damn night off, and you knew you weren't on Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> You're like, I'm not working. I'll hack the site. I want to see my kids. <laughs> but since we wanted to give back to you, the listeners, and we really think this one might have been the winner. We're not really sure. We're never using a free poll widget again. I will stop being lazy. I will program something that requires email validation in the future. But since we didn't know, and it's Halloween, we decided to do both. Yeah, I think it's getting into the spirit. You know, why not? People have asked for this for years, and, you know, I've seen it before, and there's a lot to talk about here. And what's funny to me is our two top voted movies was this and Cabin in the Woods. And 
they have so much in common because they both feel like love letters to the horror films I grew up with. Yeah, I mean, in lots of ways, they are designed to do the same thing. They are irreverently satirizing and leveling homaging the 80s horror aesthetic in different ways, but I don't know that either one of them is straight-up horror, for that matter. I mean, they deal with horrific imagery, but all of them have a sort of sardonic comedy quality as well that really permeates every frame. They also both really have cult followings. They're both produced by directors who did major Marvel team movies. Yes, and they both sat on the shelf for two years with no one wanting to release them in a theater, and yet people love them. And yet they still have, despite the bearing of the studios, have quickly found big enthusiastic fans. No doubt about it. Whoever really won the race, it's quite evident that there are big fans in both camps. I had seen this one last year. This is something that it seems as long as we've been doing now playing, or at least since 09, the listeners on Facebook have been really wanting a review of this last October because I love horror movies and I will watch virtually any good horror movie or reputed to be good. I watched Trick or Treat and did a mini review of it on the Facebook page, Halloween of 2011, but happy to discuss it more at length here in 2012. And also, I am looking for movie suggestions for this year's Halloween, so if anyone has other horror movies they'd like me to watch that they think are actually good, let me know on the Facebook page, and if I haven't seen it, I would like to. And for me, this one has become a staple. I've watched this about 10 or 12 times a year since I discovered it back in 2009. I could not get enough of this movie. I've watched it so many times. I have three copies of it here on DVD. I tell people countless times, do you have to watch this movie? I recommend it like the first time when people ask me. Dude, this is Halloween, not April Fool's Day. Oh, is that the, <laughs> I had the whole, oh, I had the wrong holiday. You're so out of it, you don't even know the traditions. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I kicked jack-o'-lanterns off stoops. Yes, people, of course, I've never seen this before. Big surprise. Never heard of it. I actually thought we were going to watch the one with Skippy from Family Ties. So I'm completely brand new to the, all of this. I walked into this movie knowing nothing except Halloween was part of the theme of the movie. And when I watched it, all I knew is that Brian Singer was somehow involved. But before we get to the movie, there's also a second reason we're doing this review, and it's to remind our listeners who like horror, who may not be listening to the Bond stuff, that we are doing horror for Halloween. Every week in September and October, we're releasing a review of a George Romero Living Dead film as part of our fall donation drive, and we could really use your support. That's right. We're trying to tackle everything with Living Dead. It's been a popular request, and we decided the best way to do it is in two tiers. Silver level, we're going to look at all six official Romero Living Dead movies. His original classic, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, All of the Deads, and then the three official remakes. Plus, a lot of us have been watching other Romero and non-Romero movies and throwing that knowledge in as well. That will be the extra gold-level donation. Plus, we do have a platinum-level donation where you can get every series we've ever done, Jaws, Child's Play, Exorcist, Poltergeist, Alien. Find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com. And remember... 
when considering whether to donate, don't just think about the thank you podcast we do, but think about every show that we do throughout the year because it's the support that comes in during these donation drives that allows us to stay on the air podcasting week after week. In 2012, twice a week, more often than not, we'll be doing 87 podcasts, which is close to 100 hours of movie reviews, 68 for free on the main feed. So we really could use your support. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the banner at the top of the page. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, when you do the math. Wow, I've been tricked. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather you have egged my windows. (laughs) And that's not even counting all the time that I and the other editors have put in behind the scenes. That's just the edited cut down half the time stuff. Yeah, we've come a long way from you roping me into 12 Friday the 13th movies and saying, ah, that'll probably be it. Well, since Stuart's been tricked, I would enjoy the treat of a plot summary. Well, this is an anthology of five stories told in an intertwining manner, but I'm going to detangle the threads for the summary. And the first is a very short story of Henry and his wife, Emma. And Emma's not in the Halloween spirit and blows out the jack-o'-lantern candle early, thus drawing the wrath of Sam, who kills her. Then we go earlier that evening and see fat little kid Charlie knocking over jack-o'-lanterns and stealing candy, and he's stopped by his school principal Wilkins, who pretends to lecture Charlie while poisoning the boy. He buries the boy in his backyard, trying to be quiet and not piss off his cantankerous neighbor, and is badgered by his young son, Billy, still in the house, wanting to make a jack-o'-lantern. And we think that when he goes in to help Billy with the jack-o'-lantern, Wilkins is going to kill his son, but in fact... The jack-o'-lantern is being carved not out of a pumpkin, but out of Charlie's decapitated head. Billy starts to cut in with a smile as we go to our next story, telling about a group of children gathering jack-o'-lanterns to take to a rock quarry to pay tribute to several mentally handicapped children that were killed there years before. The children's parents had hired their bus driver to kill all of them and end the parents' misery of parenting handicapped children. But one of the handicapped boys drives the bus over the cliff with the bus driver inside. The bus driver swims to safety, but all the children drown. In modern day, the kids take along with them to the site Idiot Savant Rhonda, who's obsessed with Halloween. But when they get to the quarry, the kids play a joke on Rhonda, trying to scare her that they were attacked by zombies of the children, but when lead brat Macy kicks one of the jack-o'-lanterns into the water, zombie children actually rise from the deep and kill the little brats, with Rhonda the only one to escape. Then we see our third story, which has actually been told intertwined with the others. Four sisters are out for a party picking up guys, and it's going to be Lori's first time. We're led to believe it's her first time having sex, but no, she's a werewolf and it's her first kill. And that someone she's going to kill is a serial killer of the town masquerading as a vampire. The vampire thinks he's going to prey on Lori, but the tables turn as the women unmask themselves to be werewolves, and the killer's mask comes off, and it's Principal Wilkins, and Lori has her way with him. The final story involves Principal Wilkins' cranky neighbor, Mr. Krieg. He scares away children who come trick-or-treating, so little demonic Sam invades Krieg's house. The two battle for a time, Krieg trying to call the police, but Sam has the upper hand, and Sam reveals Krieg is the bus driver who tried to kill those children so many years before. But after that's revealed, Sam leaves with Krieg alive. But at the film's final scene, some trick-or-treaters come to Krieg's door. Krieg has learned to respect Halloween and gives what candy he can, some breath mints and 
Altoids, it looks like. But then he's visited by the zombies of the children he drove to their deaths, and they take their grisly revenge as credits roll. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but it's been a while since they've had a movie that is really like an anthology of different stories as opposed to one big movie, right? Well, there was Sin City in 2005 that I think this is directly aping in its comic book style. This movie was intended for release in 2007. Now, the studios kind of groaned about that and fought about it a little bit, and it eventually got put direct to video in 2009, but... Knowing that this movie was made in 2006, intended for release 2007, I see the shadow of Sin City weighing heavily on this, and going about a decade earlier, Pulp Fiction also, with the time changing and the way the stories intertwine. Those were the two influences, and yeah, Sin City was not far behind this. Oh, this is a trend, though. I mean, when they talk about movies that were made between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s, the whole idea of having 40 different people in a movie and their stories intertwining with destiny, I feel like we saw that movie a lot. And you named maybe the most commercially successful, but Crash won the Oscar in 2005. I see that in here as well. I mean, Robert Altman was really famous for doing this. Steven Soderbergh tends to have big cast of characters. I think this might be the first attempt to try and do it for the horror genre. But I feel like all genres played with it, not just crime fiction with Pulp Fiction or Sin City. I mean, I really feel like a lot of stories have been handled with multi-tiered casts. Well, I agree with that, but I was really thinking uh, anthology horror. I think of Tales from the Dark Side and those kind of movies that had like three different stories released in the theaters kind of thing, which and I was kind of thinking it's been a while since we've seen a horror anthology is probably how I should have phrased it, but you're both absolutely right. It's hard not to think about Pulp Fiction and Crash when you see this movie. Right, this just isn't an anthology. This isn't just merely telling four or five different little horror tales. They've actually made an attempt to intertwine them so that it's maybe one story of a town or one story of a holiday or it's patriarch. There is an ambition here to go beyond just simply telling us four really good stories, something that, say, Creepshow did. Right. While the comic book panels in here did remind me of Creepshow, I went to another Stephen King one, Cat's Eye, and how we're kind of following the cat from story to story. Here, we're kind of following the people from story to story. But yeah, horror anthologies. I imagine Creepshow was my first, but Tales from the Dark Side... There's also Tales from the Hood, which I have enjoyed. But that's what I saw this as when I first saw it last year was a throwback. And because of the comic panels, Creepshow was the one that just loomed largest in my mind for the comparative. But Creepshow itself was a throwback to the old pre-comic code authority comics of the 50s, the horror comics of mummies and ghouls and so... Whether it was inspired by Creepshow being a second generation or whether they're actually inspired by the first generation of the comic books themselves is hard to say, especially when you have the people making this who have a pedigree of comic book movies, Brian Singer and his crew. Despite Brian Singer saying he wasn't interested in comic book movies when he did X-Men, and you can hear us talk all about that in our archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, he did two X-Men films and then... Superman returns before he produced this and his co-writer wrote this. And it seemed to me he had a hand in the casting, too, with a couple of X-Men alumni in here. It's almost easier to mention the main characters who aren't in X-Men. 
Yeah, I don't know that this is really a Brian Singer movie, though. I didn't get the sense of that. The true origin of this story is that the director of this, the writer-director of this, Michael Doherty, was an animator. I mean, he came from drawing, and that this started actually as a little short called Season's Greetings. The main character of this story was a a little pumpkin-headed guy who took a wrong turn down an alley and we think is going to be killed on midnight and Halloween and ends up getting the last laugh. A very simple story that ran in MTV and a couple little animated short film festivals. But I don't think that it was Brian Singer's idea. I think that this was the little baby of his screenwriter who, after turning in drafts of X2 and Superman Returns, got paid back the favor of of a little bit of money. I mean, I think Singer is only involved in the sense that he got this project made, but I don't see his hand really sort of guiding this. To me, this feels very much like the work of an animator who's getting to make his first film and using his friends to do so. I got a chance to see that short cartoon. It was on the DVD that I rented to watch it for this podcast. Yeah, I tried to. After about the first two minutes, I just turned it off. Did it get any better? Uh, Well, it ended. (laughs) (laughs) It was over the next minute. Yeah. I don't know what you would have missed. I mean, you probably literally, if you had just bit your fingers from hitting the eject button, probably would have seen credits. (laughs) I literally described the whole thing. He walks down an alley... (laughs) A dude goes in after he emerges with blood on his face, smiling. That's that's the that's the story. <laughs> yeah. It's very inauspicious. I got to say, watching the animated short, I didn't go get me a movie. I mean, I definitely didn't feel like there was a movie here to be had. But clearly, there was an ambition to yes, maybe create a new Crypt Keeper, create a new Rod Serling, find a new vessel to tell short horror stories in a way that feels united by having one central character. We're going to get that with Little Sam. There is a thread that ties all of these disparate ideas together. It's the embodiment of, and forgive my pronunciation here, Samhain? I always said Samhain. (laughs) It's the Celtic holiday that is the foundation of what we now know today as Halloween. It's also uh, Glenn Danzig's band. That's actually how I knew it. But Sam is Samhain or Sawain or however you want to say it. That's the whole idea here. And I think that's really the hook of the movie. For me, what gets me excited about this movie is it's a movie about the holiday itself. We've had a lot of horror movies set at different holidays, but I can't think of anyone, including John Carpenter's Halloween, that's really about the customs and traditions and why we do the things we do at this time. I think that's really a neat idea that they're going to explore here, that there's a spirit to the holiday and he is going to guide us through all the things we see. I don't know that it really comes through here. Obviously, that's something they're trying to do, and they really were trying to merchandise the hell out of this. Before the movie had ever come out, they were selling collectible dolls for $60 of Sam. And, of course, because the movie was delayed, the people making the toys didn't realize that the movie wasn't going to actually come out on time. But... They really wanted him to be, I think, the next Chucky, the next Freddy, something like that. I wouldn't rule it out. 
You're speaking as if they wanted in the past tense. There will be a sequel to this movie, and this movie has big cult appeal, as we saw in the tallies. Even though it got absolutely no theatrical distribution, and my belief on that is that Legendary Pictures, after they saw Superman Tank, felt like they didn't want to give Brian Singer any favors, and so they dumped this movie. But it did screen around town. I remember they had a sold-out free showing of this at the Chinese theater here in L.A., and people in costume around the block came out for this. This movie had good buzz for years before it was finally commercially released on DVD. And look at the fans that rallied around this. I think that this is a new classic in the making. Whether we like it or not or recommend, we'll get into it, we'll see. But I can think of no horror movie in the last five years that had more impact than this in Cabin in the Woods. If I was thinking of a horror franchise in the f- past five years that made an impact, I'd say Paranormal Activity really hit a chord with a lot of people. People who don't usually watch horror rented that movie or saw it in the theater. Oh, don't get me started on that. I am never on that series. Never. You want to know what my review is? Sit in the dark, growl, and flick on the lights back and forth. That's the movie. <laughs> But let's talk about this movie, which did make a stir. I mean, it was a Comic-Con darling. Those are my peeps. I've been going to Comic-Con every year for six years running. I was at Comic-Con during the years that this was screened, and I think I was somewhat aware of it, but I was never at any of the screenings. I was never really tapped into this. But going in, I just wasn't sure what to expect. I was watching it pretty much unknown. I didn't even realize it was an anthology when I started. But what I got immediately was a sense of the comedy. We kind of start with one of those old-timey videos, black and white, about Halloween. It's a trick-or-treating safety video, kind of done in a 1950s campy style. And yeah, it really does set the tone for what they're going for here. You know, a horror movie can mean lots of different things. And definitely the horror movies that have been in vogue for the past decade have been things like Saw and Final Destination, things that rely on gore. This feels something different. I mean, by advocating trick-or-treating and children and pagan rituals and all of that, it has a special little vibe. And once we get into the movie, I'm really intrigued with how they're going to work into the themes of the holiday itself. When we get a prologue here, it almost feels like a cautionary tale. I mean, something that I didn't know. Is this a thing? If you blow out a pumpkin, a jack-o'-lantern for the end of the night, that's bad luck. Have you ever heard that? Is that something they made up here? Or is that a superstition that has some kind of validity outside of this movie universe? Apparently, I don't know anything about Halloween because... That's why you're our newbie. (laughs) Well, I know enough. I thought, you know, living 30 plus years and going out every Halloween. You trick or treat in your 20s? In 30s. What's your point? What's your point? I don't understand. You have a point. So anyway, seriously, though, what I don't get is I've never heard of if you kick a jack-o'-lantern on Halloween, that's reason enough for you to get killed. If you blow out a candle before the night is over, I've never heard of that. It's Frankly, it's a safety thing. <laughs> I don't want my burning pumpkin on my, on my stoop. I just don't get the reasons that Sam attacks all these people in these anthologies. I never heard of any of these traditions or superstitions associated with this holiday, Stuart. So my answer is no. I thought they made it up. I was hoping you both had heard about these traditions. I thought they made it up too, and I kind of thought they were silly. They do set it up as the premise in the very first one. It's respect the jack-o'-lantern. And you can find out at the end of the movie why Sam gives such a damn about jack-o'-lanterns, because he is one. It's his head. Yes. There definitely seems to be a protectorate of pumpkins that comes from this main character. He appears often 
with other jack-o'-lanterns or in pumpkin patches, what have you. They obviously make that directly in parallel. The only thing I can tell you about the holiday itself is, and it's mentioned in passing, is that some of these rituals are tied with human sacrifice, that people believe that if you killed, it was a way of protecting. And we're going to see that with the Dylan Baker character. We're going to hear that from Rhonda the Retard. In many ways, I guess that's what I interpret this prologue to be. It is a sacrifice in honor of what they have done in the past. But it is also a cautionary tale. It is, you must respect the holiday or the holiday will kill you. Yeah, it definitely seemed like that was it. Because it's not just the jack-o'-lanterns when you get to Krieg, he just chases away trick-or-treaters. It's the those who don't feel the spirit of Halloween are damned that night, which makes me wonder if there's only four or five people in that town who don't feel the spirit, but let's focus on the ones who don't. (laughs) This movie, when it started off with Leslie Bibb and the guy from Battlestar Galactica, whose name I can't pronounce. But his name was Hilo on the show. (laughs) Let's call him Hilo, okay. (laughs) I like those two actors, and I was interested immediately, and I did enjoy the suspense that they built up in the scene. I thought it was a nice way to get back into the kind of horror I like. They had, you know, a couple of red herrings here and there, and that was kind of fun and, you know, cheap scare kind of setups, but they didn't really come through. I really enjoyed the suspense in this first scene, and it really got me in the mood to watch this movie. It's straight up calling up Carpenter's Halloween. I mean, the opening with her about to go have sex and that tracking shot of something little in a mask coming up on the front lawn going in to interrupt this. They're playing with Carpenter imagery here, and they do that a lot in this movie. I mean, I think it doesn't feel like theft. It feels like homage. This movie is about tradition, and not only are they honoring traditions of the Halloween holiday itself, they're honoring classic scenes in horror movies, and this is one of the first of many that they're going to do here. But it's the opening of Halloween, and yeah, that has me excited because, yeah, I'm a fan of Carpenter's original, so I'm hoping that we're going to get a movie that can compare favorably. Also, again, going with that opening safety video, I get a good sense of humor from this. I can tell that it's going to be scary, but it's also going to be funny because you've got their little banter going back and forth and it's giving a great vibe. And yeah, we're seeing actors I know from other things, not a lot of things, but other things. And they're giving a good performance. I'm settling right in here pre-credits. And Stuart said, these people have a history with horror that matches my own. So I'm interested in seeing that, what they do with it. The one thing I'm going to ding it on is we all kind of knew this was going to go badly. If something is following you from a killer POV, we know it's going to kill you. It's not a shocker. We saw Emma blow out the pumpkin when she was told not to. We knew she was going to get it when she's the one tearing down all of the ghost decorations on the front lawn. But when the husband wakes up, he falls asleep watching the porno because he's drunk. This is really the end of the story. We're going to find out at the end of the movie. This is the very end of everything that happens. The last thing chronologically that will happen this Halloween in this town. When he wakes up and comes down there, we know it's going to be gory. We're waiting to see what it is. We're not shocked that she's killed. We want to know what happened and who and what killed her and in what way. 
the way that they film it and cut it and cut around, I couldn't even see what had happened. She's ripped limb to limb. There's a sucker in her mouth. I was totally confused by what I was looking at or what I couldn't look at due to some jagged editing and some cut arounds. I thought maybe this movie was PG-13 because it does have a playful vibe and I thought maybe they edited out the real gore to protect maybe the younger audience. But this is an R-rated movie, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't establish itself as that when I see this prologue. I thought they were just trying to tease us because really the final act is Sam. I thought we weren't supposed to know who or what the killer is. We saw this little kid. They get in the fight under the sheets and... I do agree it's a little disconcerting, but I thought they were trying to toy with our expectations. Yeah, I couldn't quite figure out the sucker thing until I really watched it this time. Last time I saw it, I didn't get it, and that Sam's weapon of choice is a jack-o'-lantern lollipop. But even still, I mean, even if you don't know that, you want to see that her head's been torn off. We can't even tell that it's not on her body anymore. They have one of her limbs hanging in a tree, and it's dripping blood. So we know she was torn apart, but the way they cut it around, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know what is left of her and what he's looking at when he tears off the sheet. We just see her head and a sucker in his mouth. I just feel like a nice wide tracking shot to let us know what we just saw would have been helpful. Well, to clarify, she wasn't cut limb from limb. Right. They had fake limbs in their tree as their decorations. Those were what she was taking down while her husband was watching the porn. No, but one was bleeding. One was her hand. See, I thought they showed their hand, no pun intended, when they were showing the fake hands hanging from trees. So I did expect to see her actual severed limb. We did see a hand dripping blood, but we did not see, by the way it was shown to us, that it was severed from her body. I got the impression it was just hanging there because it connected to her body still. The fact that we're debating this is (laughs) verifying what I'm saying, which is this is a very poorly shot prologue. We cannot tell what's going on. (laughs) I got the lollipop. Didn't she turn into like an animated picture? That's when I got it too. Yes. When it goes in the comic book, I'm like, oh, that is obviously a lollipop stick sticking out of her mouth. But up until that point, you wouldn't know. And I do wonder, I wonder if maybe some of the reason why this movie is non-chronological, maybe some of the reason why it was delayed was the fact that it was his first film. Maybe they didn't have all the coverage. Maybe it really did need some work in post-production to come together. Maybe it wasn't ready for its close-up when it was originally supposed to be released in 2007. There are parts of this movie that show an amateur's hand. There are parts of it that are clever and feel very well scripted. Well, differentiate as we go, but this prologue, I think, is one of the weaker moments in the film. It's fun because it sets the tone for playful violence, but it's also a little confusing. I would agree, but I don't take it as bad confusing because it is a prologue. It's there to intrigue me, and it succeeds on that level. I will say the non-chronological, I listened to the director's commentaries and all that, and what we're seeing is a somewhat compromised vision. After years of test screenings, things were changed and added and removed in order to appease those. Like, for example, the little comic captions that comes right after the credits that says earlier was not there in the director's vision. It was going to be like Pulp Fiction, where you have to figure it out as you go based on who's alive and who's dead at which given time. Mm. See, what I saw with the timeline breaking up is, if you think about all four or five segments, how many there are, they're pretty short and they're pretty weak on their own. If you showed them chronologically going from start to finish, like you did in, say, Tales from the Dark Side, it would be very unsatisfying for at least three of the stories. They're very thin. So to make it stretch it out to a movie length, and this movie's only like 80 minutes, 
I think they played around with the timeline just to keep you interested. And I think they were always going to do that, but I agree with you. I think sometimes that's done to be clever and be like, oh, we got you. And sometimes I feel like it's a confusing cut. Exactly. Why would you go back to earlier at this moment? There's just things that, yes, feel like post-production futzing. And hearing you say that, Arnie, kind of makes a lot of sense here. I think you bring up an excellent point, Brock, which is that maybe the way to approach this movie is not to go through it the way that we experience it as a viewer. But yeah, let's take a look at each individual story and see how well it plays. And I think where to start is where the first thing of the night happened. The very first bad incident of the night involves seemingly nice principal, Principal Stephen Wilkins, and his vandalizing fat student, Charlie. Both of these actors, you say seemingly kind principal, but it's played by Dylan Baker. We know Dylan Baker. He was in Spider-Man 2 and 3. I know him first from that film Happiness that actually got him this gig. There's nothing nice about Dylan Baker. Dylan Baker puts me on edge. So you see him coming down the street. I know bad shit's going to go down and he's going to be a perpetrator. He just has a malevolent feel to him in his delivery. He's wonderful in that way. He's been playing that kind of role ever since Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and I go with it. He played a murderer in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? He played a malevolent force hick in the back of a pickup truck in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah, it's a whole different character than we have here. But I'm saying he's a malevolent force. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. I know this actor. I know he can play creepy. And I do love how he looks and then how he speaks. And then he does those nasty things. I still think it works for him. I mean, I know he does it a lot, but I think here it works perfectly, especially the way he's dressed, the way he talks. I enjoyed watching him here. But yes, I admit we've seen him do this before. Here's the thing, Arnie. This movie plays to two different audiences. I think for younger audiences, they're going to think this guy has a Mayberry quality, a small town quality. They are not going to anticipate that anything malevolent would come from this guy because he seems so nice and normal. But to you and I, or anyone that's seen happiness, or him go to the dark side, we know that they oftentimes use this quality he has for ironic interplay. And yes, I knew that Dylan Baker had to be a bad guy. I pretty much knew once he sat the kid down and he started coughing that something had definitely gone awry, that he had been poisoned by the principal. That seemed like just the kind of macabre twist that would be revolutionary to young audiences and would bring a wry smile to older, more horror-savvy audiences. And before we put Charlie in the ground, I also have to ask if you guys recognize Charlie. He looks a little bit older, a little bit different than when we saw him in Bad Santa, but not that much different. I've never seen Bad Santa. Never seen Bad Santa. Oh, you guys are missing out. Go watch Bad Santa. Don't watch this again. Go watch Bad Santa. He's great in it. He steals the movie from Billy Bob Thornton and Bad Santa. It was funny to see him in another holiday-themed movie. Now, one of the things about all the deaths here that I observed, everyone here has a comeuppance. They do something bad, and they're punished for it. Now, does the punishment fit the crime? No, in a lot of cases it doesn't. I'm not saying they deserve what they get. But in a weird horror movie logic way, they do. Because we saw this kid, one of his first scenes, his introductory scene, is dragging his big bag of stolen candy down a sidewalk, 
breaking jack-o'-lanterns, wearing a shirt that says, this is my costume. You know, he's just not into the spirit. He is breaking all of the Halloween rules. And I think this movie is establishing that there are rules to Halloweens that if you break, Sam will come and break you. I think Sam doesn't kill this kid, but Sam is okay with this kid being killed because he is a bad kid. What I loved was the one rule that really cracked me up that no one ever follows is just take one piece of candy. There's always that house on the block who thinks we're going to pay attention to that and just take the one piece with a little sign out front. It doesn't work that way, people. And I love the kid just ignored that one too. (laughs) That one screams to me Halloween and I'm so glad they included that in the movie. It should be noted that it's Wilkins' house that does this. I mean, what was he doing? He hasn't gone out for the evening yet. He's going to have an alternate identity and go out about the town. He hasn't done that yet. He must be waiting around the corner just to see who is going to break that law and so he can sit him down and do exactly what it's doing here. I feel like this is a trap that he has laid and is watching take fruit. Well, didn't he poison the candy that was in the bowl? I didn't see him slip a candy in there. It's hard for me to imagine that he would have killed every kid that took the candy. I mean, I don't think that he poisoned the entire neighborhood. When the kid starts vomiting and dying, Wilkins says, eat one piece of candy is the important rule of Halloween. So I think every piece was poisoned, but only when eaten in a large quantity would it actually have that impact. So anyone who stole a lot of his candy and then went home and ate it would be puking and dying. Ah, gluttony. I see. The punishment for gluttony is death. I like it. Didn't he say also that he went out to get a sharper knife to carve pumpkins with, and maybe he was just saying that, but that also could be where he actually was, Stuart. Well, I wasn't really sure if that was the truth or not. Sure, maybe. And at this point, the story is really fun for me, even though really all we're watching is Dylan Baker do physical comedy. He's dragging this kid in through his house to the back and getting all the puke and blood all over his shirt and digging a hole and feeding a finger to the dog. And I am having a grand time. I am with this movie. It helps again that I know and like Dylan Baker, but this whole thing is working for me when he seems to be trying to hide it from the neighbor and trying to appease his kid who wants to carve the jack-o'-lantern. This is just a real throwback to the kind of horror I grew up on on TV and in movies in the 80s. And I think it's done really well and performed really well. It's not scary, but it's fun. I agree. I had a lot of fun with this one. It reminded me of Tales from the Crypt TV show a lot. And I loved watching that. Believe it or not, folks, I actually did watch that first run. Really liked it. It was the writing. And it was a lot of the characters and the actors I knew from other projects. It's exactly the same thing here. It's the writing. It's the fun. It's the physical comedy. It's the misdirection. This vignette is my favorite one of the whole piece. I think Dylan Baker's a big reason because of it. Uh, They had me and then they lost me. I mean, you know, they cut away here. We meet other characters. They distract us from what happens as he goes about this. But I want to stay stuck on this story and this story alone. I think the story has a lame punchline. I'm with this movie when he's trying to bury the kid and hide it from the neighbors, but it doesn't even really make any sense. His son comes home from trick-or-treating. He's asking him to help him carve a pumpkin. He's screaming so loud that you think that the dad is going to retaliate and do the same thing that he just did to this kid he's burying to his son. But what we find out is, and I'm real confused, that he buries Charlie alive. The body's moving and whatever, But somehow the head's been separated, and it's downstairs waiting to be carved? Well, you're bringing up a plot point I had missed. You are correct, because we see the great physical comedy of him, like, writhing and Dylan Baker kicking him. But yeah, we don't see Dylan Baker carry the head indoors, do we? No. 
I mean, they could have. Here's the glory about doing it this way. Because we don't see a continuous scene, yes, maybe he did take that shovel, decapitate him, go downstairs, put it downstairs, then go back to bury the rest of it, and his son came home. And we just, by omission, they're covered. You know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But it played awkwardly. And even if I accept that as what happened and they just didn't show us, I don't get it. This is some weird pagan tradition about carving up a kid's face like a pumpkin? Huh? What I liked about the ending was that the kid was in on it, and his kid is like his father. They surprised me. I didn't see that one coming, and I liked it. I had a smile on my face. I'm like, that's cute. That's a nice little twist I didn't see coming. Good for you. But there was another body in that hole, right? We all saw the other body he threw the kid's body on top of. And I thought that was his wife, by the way. I never, We don't know who it is. We don't think we find out during the course of the movie. But couldn't it be the other body? Because the hole was still dug. It wasn't covered over. He didn't redig it. Both bodies could have been done that night. It could have been the other body squirming. Again, yeah, an error by omission. I do think we hear Charlie groaning. I mean, it could be another kid who sounds similar when muffled, but... <laughs> you know, when you duct tape their mouth, they all start to sound the same. I was going to say, I mean, I haven't really done experiments on this, but let's have a control group and see. But I do think one of the biggest failings of this, you know, you say you're excited that the kid is in on it. And I do like the fact that they really play with Dylan Baker going to kill his own kid after they implied he killed his wife. But I think it's a failing. We never see Jack-O-Lantern Charlie Head with a candle in it. Because, Stuart, you asked what's going on. You don't get it. I would get it. If we saw Charlie's head with the eyes carved out and the mouth open and the candlelight coming through like a jack-o'-lantern, especially if it was as ugly as the one that Dylan Baker had carved on the stoop while talking to Charlie, or if we saw a row of pumpkins and Charlie's head in there with the candle, if they'd gone that one extra step and made that one extra prop, I think it would have sold the whole thing a little bit better, but I'm still enjoying it. I think this is the weakest section because I just don't like the punchline here. I just don't think it works. I understand they were going for irony. You think this is the weakest section of the movie? Yes. I, uh, I'm with Brock. This is the strongest. Okay. I don't like the ending. I just don't get it. Well, I can't wait to find out what your favorite one is. Is it my second favorite one? The one with the werewolves starring Anna Paquin, who, of course, we talked about in the X-Men movies and who each season she strips down more and I love her more in True Blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is pre-True Blood here. I mean, this is Anna Paquin's weird, I just won an Oscar curse stage. You know, she won an Oscar for the piano as a child and floundered, as most people do when they win an Oscar too early in their career. You never win your Oscar at the right time. She, for years, didn't really have much to do and X-Men was her only claim to fame and even that didn't feature her very well but this is before she had the renaissance with true blood right before it was one year i think this may have had a part in getting her that role yeah I, indeed but this story is really connected with what we've just seen because it has a reoccurring character we don't know it or we are not supposed to know it for much of this runtime but i'll ask you did you guess that dylan baker was the man in black that's stalking our anna paquin here no, I did not get it. it was Dylan Baker and them as the man in black, and I did not like it was him at all. I thought it was lame. I thought it was weak. I didn't guess it, and in fact, I still question, even watching it the second time knowing it, I still question if it was really him in the kill scenes or if it was somebody else behind the mask during the scenes they filmed, because it just seems physically different, but... 
the first time I watched it, I have to say, I didn't even realize that this Man in Black serial killer was at all involved with either story. I thought this was a sixth story going on here, one with a serial killer, because it seemed that we had one story with zombies and one story with a serial killer teacher, and it seemed like they were going with different horror types for each little vignette. And so I thought this was its own when he kills that girl in front of the barber shop, that it was going to be a Jack the Ripper storyline in addition to the others. So when it intertwined so neatly with the werewolf story, they fooled me the first time. Yeah, I definitely think that it works that first time. I can't recall when I first saw it whether I had ever guessed it or not. Watching it again, it's painfully obvious it's Dylan Baker in that mask. You say they think they use some double. They didn't use a double. That's Dylan Baker. It's obviously Dylan Baker in that mask in all of those scenes. And I think that if you had guessed, this movie would still be fun because it would have made you jump to conclusions about maybe what had happened. If you had guessed right away that Dylan Baker had had some somebody while they had gone out to the festival you might have thought that he had come home from that and put that body in the backyard with charlie you might have guessed that in fact he was going to live to the end of the night and i think that's part of the fool too is that we think because he's such a badass character this killer whether you know it's dylan baker or not you do think that he isn't going to be so easily vanquished. You are tricked into thinking that he has the upper hand when he starts to stalk Lori, Anna Paquin. I disagree, and it's because I've seen so much of these TV series, Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, all of these. I knew these girls were bad, and they were going to kill someone before the night was through. They drop a line real early when the girls are being introduced. One of the girls goes, why do we do this? The other one goes, fresh meat. I'm like, ah, they eat people. And from that moment on, I was on to them. I don't know if it was too obvious or if I was paying too close attention, but I knew immediately when he was stalking Anna Pack when I'm like, he is dead. Yeah, I didn't necessarily know that they were werewolves, but I knew something was up. But I think once they reveal that they are, and once that we see Anna Paquin's little meek woman get into the whole thing, when she's killing Dylan Baker, it really became painfully obvious this movie thinks it's much more clever than it actually is. And yes, it's a nice little twist. Yes, it's kind of fun. And it's better written than a lot of things we've seen. But this movie is nowhere near as clever as the writer thinks it is. I hear what you're saying. That Yes. Is that all there is? Uh, you could probably ask that of each individual tale. I certainly asked about that in the first one, the Dylan Baker story. When we finally find out the punchline that, oh, the kid's head is going to be carved into a jack-o'-lantern. To me, that was a disconnect to a story where I thought a father might kill a son. I just didn't think that that was a payoff. Here, I think they set it up a bit better. You know, by the way they costume these girls, they're all fairy tale characters. They obviously play into the Little Red Riding Hood motif. And we are to presume that the man in black is going to be the big bad wolf that follows poor Anna Paquin's Little Red Riding Hood all the way home. And we don't know what he's going to do when he sees all the other girls in the meadow. I think you can probably figure out something's up because they're so man-hungry. You know, they're finding anyone, news crew guys or some nerd that's the cashier. Like, they seem non-discriminating about who they invite out to Sheep's Meadow. So I knew something probably was going to go bad there, but it's the journey there that I wasn't sure about. It 
fooled me. I can't say that I thought Anna Paquin wasn't the victim as she plays Little Red Riding Hood being followed down the jack-o'-lantern path into the forest. It's the joke of the movie, and you might say that it's not as clever as you want, Brock, and I hear you, but it's the joke of the movie that she's the big bad wolf. Yes. Yeah, and she was Little Red Riding Hood, and there was Bo Peep in that group, so there was a lot of wolf-sheep imagery there, and... While I was with Brock and I figured it out, I did still find this scene fun. Is it because I enjoy looking at four really hot girls in slutty outfits that may honestly be a part of it and go ahead and appeal to that baser side of me? Part of it is also I thought that they gave really solid, fun funny performances. There's just a lot of randomness that goes on there. There's the guy in the baby outfit, passed out drunk. And then there's this walking around little teddy bear and I don't even know what the hell that is and how it relates. There's a lot of randomness. But what I think hurts this story absolutely the most is that it is told over the span of the entire first hour. Whereas all the other stories are pretty much told Like little mini-episodes, this is our quote-unquote framework, but that doesn't even work itself because it ends before our final story. And by stretching it out so long, there's just not enough meat there, no pun intended, to make me care that long. I think this would have been so much tighter a story and one I would have been able to give a lot more credit to if they told it all at once like the others and kept me invested in the tension of the man in black and what's going on with Lori and all the others because so much time passes and how much time really does pass because it again simultaneous with other stories but by splitting it up this way it hurt this story. I completely agree with you. This went on way too long, and I didn't really care at the point. But you guys made a point a second ago about the main joke of the movie is that it's Little Red Riding Hood, and she turns out to be the big bad wolf. Arnie mentioned Bo Peep was there. They're mixing their metaphors here, too, because they have Cinderella and Snow White. They're clearly Disney princess Snow White, not just Cinderella and Snow White. Like, they look enough like the actual characters, especially Cinderella. And those two are grim fairy tales, sure, but Little Bo Peep is a nursery rhyme. And <laughs> so that didn't fit. I'm not, I know wow. it sounds stupid. I know, wow. I know, and- but hear me out. It took me right out of it, that it's a nursery rhyme and fairy tales. I was confused on what they were trying to say. If the metaphor is supposed to be, as I think it is, and as we already said, that it's a big bad wolf is dressed like Little Red Riding Hood here, then why are they doing it that way? Why are they conjuring Disney and nursery rhymes? It's mixing things. Brock, it's simpler than you're making it out to be. They're all classic characters from folklore and tradition. You know, that's the theme of the movie about tradition and stories and things that are passed down. The fact that she's a little Red Riding Hood is supposed to make you think that she's never going to get to her friends. That this Little Red Riding Hood story is going to play out. That we won't know what's going to happen in the forest. That that's something else going on entirely that we think that this is going to be a self-contained story. We aren't to anticipate that Dylan Baker's body is going to be thrown in the middle of that bonfire and that all those girls are going to shed their skin and be she-wolves. I mean, I think that that is supposed to be a surprise. Right. If they didn't have other fairy tale or childhood costumes on, if they had regular costumes on, 
I wouldn't even be making this argument because the, the whole thing is about Little Red Riding. But if they were all sexy zombies or witches or all that, you would be wondering why she went with a Little Red Riding Hood outfit. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. She's dressing that way because all her other friends are going along with that theme. That's all it is. I mean, don't overthink this movie. I think that one thing I want to stress here is the appeal that it has. And I do think it has appeal. I'm hearing some pushback here. But it is one of childhood and glee and of being in the mentality of people that would go and trick-or-treat. You know, you have to tap into your inner child and to appreciate these ironies and these twists. Yes, they aren't sophisticated. This is not Pulp Fiction in structure, yes, but in terms of complex ideas and themes, I don't see a lot of that here. I think that the twists all work on a very superficial level that appeals to the child within you, the trick-or-treater inside. And it sounds to me like you've got the teepee and the soap, and you're just not willing to accept what's being handed out to you. The second segment here does have a lot going for it, and I liked the idea of what it was going for. I think my main point is the execution of this plot just didn't work for me because I figured it out way too early, and I was taken out of it by what I was taken out of it by. So I sit there analyzing it more than in taking the ride its story wanted me to tell. Also, as Arnie pointed out, it went over so long that how could I not? Yeah, and you're right, Stuart. They're not even really trying to be that clever with it because there's some really stilted dialogue where the girls are like, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your dressing room in or whatever it is. Everything is just so telegraphed here that it pulls the punch of the punch line, but it's still enjoyable performances and, yeah, a fun little Halloween story. Again, throwing back to those TV shows I watched in the 80s. Well, even if you're not surprised that they turn out to be the aggressors, we're all surprised when we see the vampire with the fangs ripped off, with the mask ripped off, and it's Dylan Baker. I do think that surprise holds weight, at least the first time you see it. The second time, I remembered it. That was the one thing I remembered about this, was like, oh, that's Dylan Baker. I know that that's Dylan Baker, only because it got me so good the first time I watched it. Yeah, that was a hell of a stunner, and you question if it makes sense. I don't know why, but because he's a principal and because he killed a kid, Charlie, and the whole thing was he was killing Billy, I took him as a child killer and so when you think about him then killing the slut in the alley and going after Lori, now he's just killing a lot of people in one evening i don't know that that fits the character we were introduced to earlier but i love the mind fuck that it produces a way to make this play better would be if the thing that they're practicing the ritual carving the pumpkin whatever he and his son are doing you know he has that dialogue about he learned from his father the true meaning of the halloween if we understood what the rituals were and what the human sacrifices meant then we could understand why he would make the leap of dressing out and going out and being this vampire character as well they could have set that up if they had written that first segment better but you're right it's kind of random we don't know what the rules are we're expected to. They're acting like, oh, it's Halloween, these ancient Celtic traditions. But, you know, I guess my lore doesn't go back that far. If these have any weight in Halloween as we know it now, I've never heard it before. I have never heard it. Well, that reveal is followed by my single favorite scene of the entire movie. And that's the wolfing out of all those girls played to Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams. And I really just did not want to like Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dream song. I just really, really wanted to hate it and hate everything related to Marilyn Manson. But that song has been used now in enough trailers and in this movie that it fucking rocks. And this scene just works so well on every level for a horror film. I like the skin being peeled off a lot. I thought that was a really cool image. 
Yeah, to me, this is a gender inverse. I think of werewolves as always being men. I think of that 80s movie, The Company of Wolves, which is a little Red Riding Hood story with the wolf being werewolves. And I'm just so used to thinking the werewolf is always being the guy. I guess I haven't seen the Ginger Snaps movies, but maybe I would have guessed that in this ending if I had. But to me, it felt clever in the sense that, oh, I would have never thought that they would have been werewolves, which is maybe, you know, some kind of killer, sure. But I just, it wouldn't have thought that they would have been something that's always typified as being a male beast. And I had seen Ginger Snaps, all three of them, when they came out, so maybe that also influenced this. But also, werewolves are just so big this decade, I blame Underworld for that, and to another degree, Harry Potter. I don't think werewolves are that big. Uh, Underworld is what I thought of, too. Yeah, but those are vampires. <laughs> no, it's werewolves versus vampires is Underworld. I know, but like nobody likes the lichens. Nobody. If we ever do that <laughs> series, you won't find any like anyone liking the lichens. No, it doesn't happen. <laughs> and then there's Teen Wolf on MTV, which is a hit. Teen Wolf! You and the Teen Wolf! Let it go! No one likes it as much as you. No one! I don't watch it, but it's on because people like it. It's a big hit. <laughs> I don't watch it. I don't think that werewolves have ever had the cachet of vampires. I don't think they're that big. I think Skinwalkers and that Benicio Del Toro movie and lots of werewolf-themed things have bombed, and vampires keep doing big, big business. Guys, Twilight has vampires all over it, doesn't it? And werewolves. And werewolves. Yeah, exactly. Keep holding on to that. <laughs> Regardless, we're all saying the same thing here. The transformation, however it may have been telegraphed, is still a good one. I mean, I think it's, it plays as a good horror scene watching these women wolf out. And I'll reveal a bit of my hand. I don't think the movie hits this high again. But if it did, my God, would it be a strong recommend. Now, you say that you didn't know why the teddy bear was running around. We've actually seen him before. That little kid in the bear outfit. And his mother. You got to go all the way back to the dressing room scene at the beginning. And they sort of play a part and are reintroduced to the third story as well. Mrs. Henderson. She is one of several houses that our third story characters stop by searching for jack-o'-lanterns. She's hosting a Halloween party. She's a mother. And we think that she is just, you know, one of the nice neighbors. And these three kids go up to ask for a jack-o'-lantern and recognize that their teachers are all having some kind of furry convention at her house. <laughs> I love the line about fucking the pig. That was really amusing. Yeah, and again, another tip-off that you might have guessed that they were wolves and that Mrs. Henderson was in on it too is that all of her male victims are in pig outfits. So yeah, three little pigs, werewolves. I mean, yeah, they're playing with that imagery. But that's sort of the tie-in with our third segment here when we learn about the school bus massacre. This third segment, I'm going to need you guys to help me understand, because I get all the stuff that happened in the past. That's very straightforward. Mentally handicapped children, the parents pay to kill them all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it makes that much sense, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know if there was any backlash from the mentally handicapped community about this movie saying that parents would rather kill their children than have to parent a mentally handicapped. And not just one set of parents, but like eight sets of parents are all like, yeah, kill them. Yeah. Yep. But I get all of that. But what I don't get entirely is what's going on with these kids gathering the jack-o'-lanterns and gathering Rhonda to go to the quarry. I think it is as simple as this. Only one of the kids really knows the whole story, and that is Macy. 
She is the one that's sort of leading this group. You can tell that she's sort of enjoying being the center of attention. She's the one dressed like an angel. I think she's just an attention hog. She thinks that the way to commemorate this moment is to bring eight tributes, eight carved jack-o'-lanterns to the spot where they died. But I also think that in the back of her mind, she's planning to play a prank on one of them. I don't know at what point the idea is settled that we'll do it to Rhonda, but Rhonda wasn't initially invited. Originally, it was four kids who were running around the neighborhood trying to get jack-o'-lanterns. They're having trouble because Charlie broke them all. And they eventually meet up. Now, there's an interesting sort of callback here. I got fooled. I got to say, there are four kids here. I've already mentioned Macy. She's the angel. We got Chip, who's the little pirate kid. Sarah, who's the alien with the braces. And then we have the kid that they meet up with on the way there, Schrader. And he's just wearing a white mask. Now, there is a character at the prologue when Leslie Bibb looks across the street and thinks that She is being watched by someone. She sees a man in a white mask. And so I think Schrader is going to live because I think that that's Schrader. And because I know that's the end of the night and he's wearing a white mask like Schrader does, I am not going to anticipate the fate that Schrader gets. So in that way, this segment does fool me. I think that that's its best little trick that it does here. But it's at some point decided that in order to get the eight pumpkins they need for tribute, they have to go someone who is obsessively, compulsively carved hundreds of pumpkins and put them out on their front yard. Rhonda, or as they unkindly have named her, Rhonda the Retard. And I could never tell if it was really just accidental that they went to her or if she was always a target of theirs because they already obviously make fun of her. I agree with Arnie. I got the impression they always made fun of this girl. And the boy is the only one who feels bad for her. Yeah, I think that's clear. She's Carrie. She's the shut-in at home that never goes out, that stays home carving jack-o'-lanterns while her other kids go and trick-or-treat. She's a loner kid. She's not a quote-unquote retard, but she is a loner, and they call her a retard for that reason. I think that's the tip-off that we're going to know that she's going to be the one to live because this is a story about people that have picked and persecuted mentally challenged kids. So obviously the one that is currently being called such a thing is not going to be the one to die. Also, the angel is the one that turns out to be the wickedest one and the one dressed like the witch becomes the hero of the story. And that's what they were doing with Red Riding Hood in the other segment that we've been watching for the past hour. So they tipped their hand there as well. Yeah, these are the kinds of twists that they're having. I mean, is it brilliant? No, but is it fun? I think it's fun. This one, it just never congealed, though, because they talk about the myth of the zombie kids and they play this trick on Rhonda. And then what eventually gets them is they defile another jack-o'-lantern and throw it in the water, causing these actual zombies to rise up and kill them all and you talk about the punishment not fitting the crime i mean i viewed this as punishment for fucking with Rhonda, but the crime is really pumpkin desecration here and this story never came together and even on a second watching when i knew everything that was going to happen the way it's told the switching of point of views because it starts with macy and then when Rhonda shows up it switches to Rhonda's point of view you know macy's a bitch the whole time but Rhonda's escape and then her encounter with Sam, it's all felt very random and rushed and thrown together. 
they get me. When they get to the rock quarry, the whole reason it's a rock quarry is because they have this elevator conceit here that can only fit three of them. Otherwise, it's a lake. I don't know how you call it a rock quarry. It's filled with water. It was filled with water back then. It's filled with water now. It's not a rock quarry. It's a lake. But they call it a rock quarry because there's an elevator built right there <laughs> to take them down three at a time. And they get me. When they have her doing the second shift and she hears the screams and the jack-o'-lanterns down below are going out and the little pirate kids freaking out, I had forgotten that this was a prank. I had forgotten it and I really bought into it because I remembered that there were zombie children at some point. So I thought, oh, this is what it is. And when she sees the fat kids' guts being eaten and all that, I was totally with it. I thought, wow, this is really cool. I did not know that this was the prank. I mean, it made sense as soon as they revealed it and they stepped on the glasses. As soon as we heard the noises, I knew it was the three kids who went down first. I did not get fooled at all. When the zombie kids came out for real, that was the logical ending for the story for me. So as a narrative story, I liked that it went there. Wasn't surprised at all, but it was more satisfying that they did actually finish it the way that I thought they should. Yeah, I was never fooled first watching or second as to what was going on. And once you said, Stuart, not having adequate coverage and novice filmmaker, I think this is the segment that suffers most for it. Because we see this all from Rhonda's point of view in the elevator. If we saw kids, you know, faking something going on, but all we hear is screams and the light goes out. And I'm like, it's an obvious prank. It's not violent enough to fool me. It can fool... Rhonda the retard, but it's not fooling me one iota. And then when the actual zombie kids come up, it just felt very road. Even though I knew where the werewolf one is going. I had no idea where the Dylan Baker one was going, but I knew where the werewolf one was going. This one, the end delivery just didn't feel right. I kept going back to Ted Dance and Creepshow and thought that is a better way of doing it than what we saw here. Although they then pull a little more Creepshow in the exact same way in the next one. I hear what you're saying. And the disconnect is this. Those kids going down there to pay tribute to eight kids that died should not merit them being killed. That doesn't make any sense that those children would be punished for remembering their legacy and wanting to honor it. That makes no sense. That's the disconnect. And they try to, yeah, futz it by saying, well, one girl kicked a pumpkin into a lake. And so thus, that's what deserves it. But the disconnect with the story is that those kids really don't do the transgression that should get them killed. If it were better written, they would be down there trying to conjure or communicate with the dead. That they would be purposely trying to cast a spell to raise them from the dead as a joke. And then they get their wish and that's why they die. To me, that would play better. See, and I think that my problem is that I don't ever get the impression, because Macy's such a little prissy bitch, I don't think she'd ever pay tribute to anyone but herself. So that's why I still feel it was all a ploy to play a trick on somebody, and that it wasn't really a tribute. Yeah, and I also think that maybe these children were disabled, they were different, or had problems that other kids don't. And the kids that were killed, they were killed for that reason, because the parents paid the bus driver. Well, here are three kids who treat this other girl. They call her Rhonda the retard, even though I don't get the impression she really is. She's just different. But maybe these kids are protecting someone they think is one of their own, quote unquote, and that's why they killed the other three kids. That could be an interpretation of the story. I thought a lot about it afterwards, too, wondering why they did kill those kids, and that's something I came up with. But they even kill the ones who were nice to Rhonda. The boy who right. flirts with her 
they're as dead as Macy. Yeah, and you say Macy is terrible. I don't think she's terrible. I just think she's jealous and she's spoiled. I mean, to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's the worst kid in the world. She's smart. She's bright. I do think that some of this was a Halloween-themed tribute. I agree. In the back of her mind, at some point, she knew she was going to play a prank. And the other kids were in on it, obviously, because they pretend to be zombies and pretend to stalk her. I mean, so they're all guilty of that much, going along with Macy's prank. I mean, they're not completely innocent here, but I don't think that that is a crime worthy of bringing the children back from the dead. And more to the point, if they're going to come back from the dead, they really ought to take out their parents, and they really (laughs) need to take out the person in the fourth story, which they eventually do. The fourth story is the simplest, and yet has the actor who I never expected to be there and really put a smile on my face, Hannibal Lecter. No, not that Hannibal Lecter. The other Hannibal Lecter, (laughs) Brian Cox. Manhunter Lecter, yes. Also the villain in X2, which is probably why he got the gig. Right. So the question really is, guys, when did you figure it out? Honestly, I figured it out when we see the man at the rock quarry because the neighbor had this very specific wheeze. And when the bus driver pulls out of the rock quarry, they have this horribly ADR'd wheeze on top of him that did not feel like part of the natural sound mix. And it felt like a copy-paste of audio. I'm a bit of an audio geek. I do edit this podcast. It (laughs) called out to me that it was not a natural effect. And I'm like, click, it's that guy. And so that one audio cue gave it all away because of how poorly it was mixed. Oh, I did guess it till the end. I had no idea. And even the second time viewing, I'd totally forgotten that he is the bus driver that was bringing the kids to their doom. To me, this was just the way you end an anthology series. I have just rewatched Creep Show and reviewed it over at our Facebook. I'm doing a little mini Romero review. And that anthology ends with a curmudgeon who lives an isolated existence and kind of bah humbugs on the people around him. I thought they were just calling out Creep Show. I thought this was the pattern that they were following here, that this was going to be like the cockroach story in Creep Show with the cockroaches replaced by Sam. I figured it out the first time they mentioned the bus driver survives before they even show anything else. I said, it's Brian Cox, the neighbor. I knew instantly. There was no surprise for me at all. And they show the scar on his face later on. And that just confirmed it 100%, of course, before they even reveal it with the picture in the fire, which by that point, everyone should have figured it out, in my opinion. And so there was no surprise at all. But of course, they're going to try to connect it there. I think once you figured out all the stories were being connected earlier in the movie, my brain, I guess, was already wired to try to figure out how many more times they're going to connect it. That's maybe helped me figure it out so early. Now, what I got out of this was a whole lot of Pet cemetery because you've got this little kid in the house going around. They even do the cut at the back of the leg, which was something Gage did in Pet cemetery. I mean, you could go child's play, but some of the scenes, especially in the bedroom, felt just right out of Pet cemetery. the movie. Perhaps you know that one better than I do. But I was asking, if someone didn't didn't guess, what was he deserving? I thought it was because he was a curmudgeon. They set up his segment with the idea that it's we're actually going back earlier. This is actually happening concurrently as Charlie is being poisoned, hearing away trick-or-treaters with his dog Spite. 
And I thought that he was just Scrooge, you know, Scrooge for Halloween. The way Scrooge hated Christmas, this guy hates Halloween. And he does. I mean, there's a reason for it. We'll find out it's because he killed children on Halloween. But he hates Halloween, and I thought, well, that's enough to get him to be killed. Because Sam killed the woman for blowing out a pumpkin. Well, of course he's going to kill somebody for not opening a door to trick-or-treaters and give it, handing out candy. So I thought that that's what this segment was about. And it didn't quite play right. I got to say, if I had anticipated he was the bus driver, I might have enjoyed what I was seeing more, at least felt like what this guy was suffering from was more deserved. It's kind of strange, all the torment he's put through for simply not handing out candy here. Let me confirm your suspicion there, Stuart, because having known both times from figuring it out, it really did enhance my enjoyment to know this and to wait for the shoe to drop. When the shoe drops, I feel it's more of a slipper, but it was the most fun for me here was waiting for that to come back and see how it would play in, not seeing this old man tormented by this rodent-like child. Agreed completely with Arnie. Knowing up front accentuated the enjoyment I was able to get out of this segment. You know, here's something they could have done, and I think it might have been more interesting. We see in the flashback, when that school bus goes over, we saw Sam in a pumpkin patch kind of watching it go down. What if he had been one of the kids? I think that would have made more sense. You know, that maybe that would have telegraphed it too much at this point, that that's what he was here to do. You guys were already ahead of the game here. But it would make more sense that he would take it so personally. And maybe he's the reason why the other children come back from the grave. If they had established that Sam was the one that raised them from the dead. I don't know. I just feel like I don't know enough about Sam. This is the segment that's supposed to really show us what he can do and who he is here. But at the end of the day, you mentioned Chucky. I feel like he's Chucky made out of pumpkin pulp. I don't know what he is. He's quote-unquote the spirit of Halloween, but they haven't defined the rules yet. They haven't really said what that means. I guess he's indestructible. He carries a shank and a candy bar. I did like that. When he unwrapped the candy bar and it was a shank, I, I had to applaud. That was pretty cool. I like him as the spirit of Halloween, though. I really like him as this mystical entity. If you make him one of the children... I think that takes away from it because you then have had to tie in a pumpkin desecration to the children's death also. Mm. But beyond that, it would also take away the single best part of the story because even though I'd figured out who Brian Cox was, I'm like, what the fuck when Sam lets him live? Sam has always been a harbinger of doom. So why does this guy get to learn the spirit of Halloween when everyone else died? And the punchline I didn't see coming, and I really should have, was the zombie kids who came out of the water kept going. Again, I felt that ending was very satisfying to the stories we've already heard. And I don't mind knowing that was coming if it felt right. You know what I mean? It felt like it should end that way. So good for them for going there and ending the story the proper way. My favorite part of the whole segment was when he shot him with the shotgun and it was pumpkin pulp coming out. That made a little more sense to me, Stuart, that this guy takes so offense, so much offense to all these pumpkins being destroyed throughout the <laughs> <Yeah>. movie. <laughs> that is the connection I'm getting. Yeah, I agree. And those are a couple of the things that I enjoyed more because this segment – goes on for quite some time. It's a 20, 25-minute segment, and a lot of it is this cat and mouse with the kid. It's almost a silent movie. It's 
a real throwback to that animated short that I didn't sit through, where it's all about the action and Brian Cox's dialogue is completely in service to primarily making ouch sounds and trying to call the police. It's just goes on too long for what little it is. I don't feel the tension was high enough to keep it going this long. Well, here's the thing. I don't necessarily want him to live. You know, he's not a sympathetic character. So if Sam is going to kill him, well, he killed Leslie Bibb and I liked her a whole lot better. I don't have a problem with this going down this way. I mean, I think it's a bit undeserved as someone that just didn't like the holiday and turned off the lights. I don't think he quote unquote earned it, but I'm like, all right, kill him. At least do something cool. I mean, show us what you can do, Sam. I agree. There's no tension here because we don't want to see Krieg live. And unlike in Creepshow, we don't necessarily want to see him punished either. You know, we don't like the end guy in Creepshow either when the cockroaches are coming out. But he's a racist and a bigot and he deserves what's coming to him. And this one, I didn't get what he deserved until it was too late. And Sam's the wrong vessel for administering that punishment. Even he recognizes it, which is why he turns and leaves. I felt bad for the dog. Ah, you got a finger. (laughs) (laughs) And while I was surprised by what happens to Krieg at the very end with the zombies, I felt that was the single most satisfying part of the entire Krieg story, was that I didn't see the zombie kids coming for him. That was a good twist on me. It's also the end of the movie, and I feel that for stories told non-chronologically that are supposed to intertwine, the end should have come together a little more than just those two stories followed by seeing Leslie Bibb come home and seeing that a car that is being driven by Anna Paquin and the kids are walking down the street. Having them all like come out to take their final bow, a curtain call, isn't as satisfying as if there'd been a story reason that linked them all together. Well, it sounds to me like you guys wanted a more intricate and complicated movie, maybe a more adult movie than this ended up giving us. But I think it works for the audience that they're targeting. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Trick or Treat? Stuart. Well, I'm going to say this is a treat. I mean, not to say that there aren't tricks here, but for me, this movie works in an interesting way because it's an R-rated movie for kids and kids at heart. And it's been a long time since we've had that kind of fun in a horror movie. When I think about horror movies from this past decade, a lot of them have laid on the gore and doing kind of grindhouse, extreme violence or doing this kind of found footage, doesn't this feel so real and not even telling a story? Here, this is the kind of movie I really would have appreciated as a young horror fan. When I was just getting into horror, it meets you exactly at that right level. It is more violent and graphic than Disney horror movies or Are You Afraid of the Dark or Goosebump books. I mean, it does ask for a more sophisticated horror level, but it's not that sophisticated. At the end of the day, it is seeing violence as silly and nothing to get too scared about. It has a child sensibility, even though it's an R-rated film. And it's much like Creepshow in that fact. It's not as good as Creepshow. And you asked me what my favorite segment is. The answer is none of them. If they weren't tied together the way that they were and played these kinds of trick-or-treat games with the story and what's going on, I don't know that I would have liked this. If they had made a straight anthology and just told these four tales side by side, not interconnected, 
this probably would be a not recommend. It's all in the fun of the telling of it. It's all in the way that they've spun this that makes it a more enjoyable ride. So I think it's an excellent kickoff to a horror movie marathon. We're now in Halloween season. This would be the first one you watch. And then, you know, you go into the real ones. Carpenter Halloween. You go to the thing. You go to better horror movies the more you go into the night. But this sort of sets the tone and sets the mood. It's, I think, a good introduction to a horror movie franchise. And I would appreciate seeing more. So I'm going to say recommend. Arnie. Before we recorded this tonight, after watching the movie and taking my notes, I dug way back on the Facebook page to read my review of this from last year. And it was hard because my memory of this had faded so quickly. I honestly started in the 2009 Facebook posts. I thought I had seen this three years ago. And then I was certain it had to have been 2010. I could not believe that I saw this for the first time under a year ago, and here I am watching it a second time. And I read my review that I wrote back then, and I couldn't believe how much it just was identical to my thoughts now. I'll read what I wrote then. Listeners told me to check out Trick or Treat. I love the film's throwback to the old Creepshow films. In fact, Romero and King could probably sue for how big a ripoff this is down to the comic word panels. The ensemble cast worked well also. But as with all anthologies, some stories are stronger than others, and the film's interwoven storytelling added to the uneven feeling. I feel it led with its best stuff, and I was feeling more tricked than treated by the end. A for effort, but C- minus for execution, so a slight not recommend. And I can't say it better than I did then. The Dylan Baker stuff, great. The werewolf stuff, pretty good. The quarry stuff, unintelligible crap. And the Brian Cox story, overlong with not enough tension. A good punchline, though. It's a really weak not recommend, but when the movie's batting 50%, that's a not recommend. And I'm seeing what both of you are seeing. Stuart, I got Goosebumps feel off of this, too, but not in the same way you did. I think a younger audience might enjoy this, absolutely. I think your idea of it being a bridge into a more intense R-rated horror movie certainly could be the intention. But the problem I'm having with the movie the whole time is, as I said earlier, it thinks it's really, really clever, and it's just not. It's obvious. And unfortunately, because it's so obvious to me, it takes away from the enjoyment. I do acknowledge there's some great camera work here. I love the performances almost throughout. I think everyone did a really great job. It's well cast. And I liked a lot of things about the style of the movie and the artistic direction. I love little sack boy. I love the way he looked. I thought he was great. There are a lot of good, strong things in this movie. But really, when it gets to the point where I was towards the end of the movie, where I was just wishing the stories had more meat to them, maybe I'd be able to go along with the intercutting part of it. I could also be very tired of the intercutting thing, too. It's been used to death, and here, it wasn't used effectively. I thought it was trying to hide something, because at the end of the day, everything is pretty thin. So it's a weaker not recommend. I think Arnie summed it up perfectly with, it had a lot of good intentions, and it had a lot of good ideas, but when you put everything together at the end, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't doesn't hold up very well, so I'm giving it a not recommend. And if they do another one, I hope what they choose to do for the stories will have a little more substance. I'm going to side with you on that much. I definitely feel like they could write better horror tales that the targets that they had, just the elements in play. I just felt like the individual stories were weak. All four of them were weak and that they kept it going by this shell game, by having Sam sort of bring it all together in a non-chronological way. I agree. There will be a sequel. I'm confident there will. And I would like to see stronger writing the next time. 
you're confident, I'm not. There's been no movement on the sequel. There's been no mention of the sequel that I can even find since this came out on video. I don't know that this director has the clout to continue to make another one. We can wait and see. But I don't mind that the stories are a little bit weak. I mean, growing up watching the stuff we watched in the 80s when they brought back Twilight Zone and they had Alfred Hitchcock Presents and, hell, Amazing Stories was one of the best and Monsters was one of the worst and I consumed them all. Because this was such a nostalgia trip to the 80s horror for me, I would have been fine with it had they just been paced a little more. Brian Cox's went too long and Anna Paquin's was too cut up. I think a fan edit of this movie that may not actually make the running time to declare it a feature film, it may be down to 70 minutes, but a fan edit of this could have made it a much stronger recommend. Yeah, and I think it's aided by the fact that it is short. I mean, you can say that it was bored or trying, but it doesn't waste your time. I mean, there's not enough time here to be wasted. It goes by really, really quick. Yeah, I didn't check my clock once. So with that, I hope you listeners have enjoyed this bonus Fans' Choice review. And remember, if you want to hear us talk more horror, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top of the page, and we've been doing the Romero series for quite a while now, so when you make your donation, you will get in one lump email all the Romero films we've covered so far, plus we will treat you every week to a new Living Dead movie review all the way up till Halloween. And if you like Tales from the Dark Side and like things like Trick or Treat, just know George Romero made that series. So obviously there are a lot of fans of this movie. It's a big cult movie after all. So why don't you go to our forums or come to Facebook and share your thoughts on this movie and join in the discussion with other fans like yourself. Well, recommend or not, Trick or Treat, I'm glad we finally got to Trick or Treat because it's been a real popular one. And I've had fun revisiting it and trying to parse it all out. Well, one thing's for sure. This Halloween, I'm going to make sure my pumpkin just burns to its crisp before I put it out because I'm not going to risk little sack boy coming to my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we'll talk to you Friday with Living Dead. Happy Halloween. Screw you! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Let's curve a scary face this time. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can hear reviews of The Halloween Movies, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Terminator, Star Trek, and hundreds more. It makes me wish every night was Halloween. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Aren't you coming? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'm not in the mood, so just come on out! The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Where the holiday and all of its strange traditions are taken very seriously. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Anything for a good cause. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. It's my first time, so just 
bear with me. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. It took longer than I thought. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Premiere, Legendary Pictures, or Bad Hat Harry Productions. Trick or Treat is the property of Warner Premiere, and no infringement is intended. All these traditions, they were started to protect us, but nowadays, no one really cares. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. The one night a year when we can pretend to be the scariest thing we can think of. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Happy Halloween. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. You almost said James Brock. I almost did, yes. <laughs> I bit my tongue. <laughs> every single week in September and October, every single week in September and October, we are releasing a review of... Do you guys hear that? It sounds like a fax machine. No. I don't hear that. Oh, it's my dog it's barking. Oh. <laughs> of course. It's so distorted <laughs> through the headphones, it sounded like a fax. My, my dog sounds like the old internet sound. I mean, dial up. Yeah, that's the same yeah. sound. <laughs> oh, he's choking. Yeah, we've come a long way from you roping me into 12 Friday the 13th movies and saying, ah, that'll probably be it. <laughs> at the t- yeah, with an extra bonus podcast at the end of it for a 13th episode, we're like, we have to talk more about this? <laughs> Arnie was not going to let it go without 13 episodes. It's Friday the 13th, damn it. Hey, we had video games to talk about. <laughs> from my hotel in Manhattan. <laughs> yes. And you sounded just as good then, I gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) This recording is... Believe it or not, I actually watched Tales from the Dark Side, so... I thought you were going to say Tales from the Hood, and that I would not have believed. (laughs) (laughs) What's your implication? (laughs) <laughs> don't answer that. Yeah, I don't answer that. <laughs> Hold on, I think I'm gonna sneeze. No. I didn't necessarily know there were vampires. But they, weren't, I, they were werewolves. Sorry, thank you. <laughs> That's because I, because they weren't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't necessarily know. What it's really punishment for is pumpkin defecation, pumpkin yes. de- pumpkin desecration. So pumpkin <laughs> defecation. Defecation <laughs> a little different. Yeah. Wow, that would be something. <laughs> Shitting in the. I think pumpkins. that would be triple X. I'm not sure they could release that movie. <laughs> Oh, 
some of the scenes, especially in the bedroom, felt just right out of Pet Cemetery, the movie. Perhaps you know that one better than I do. I haven't seen this since the 80s, but maybe we need to revisit that. <laughs> yeah, sure. The next time I have a couple free years, we'll do Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> 87 movies this year, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll be begging for Marvel and Bond. I think combined, that wouldn't be as much as Stephen King. 